Hello, and welcome to another episode of Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. My name is Max Frost, and I'll be your host today. <laughs> Joining me is my co-host, Matt Weinset. Matt, how are you doing? We're both co-hosts. Both co-hosts. Well, I'm happy to be here, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Didn't love that entrance, but uh, <laughs> well, it doesn't matter because we have a great episode coming for you today. We are joined by Dr. Nick Eberstadt, a scholar here at AEI. Nick holds a PhD um, from Harvard as well as an MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School and a master's in economics from the London School of Economics. He is a demographer by training. You may have you may remember he came on the show back several months ago to talk about. Yeah, when I say back in January, February, when uh. This is how you know I'm the host and Max is the co-host because I uh, I interviewed Nick a while ago about the demographics of China with Spencer Moore, the former host of this show. Yeah. And But now we're going to talk about North Korea where at some point in his career he decided that in addition to, be, to being one of the best demographers in America, he's going to become one of the foremost North Korea experts as well. Yeah. So Nick has some interesting insights. He was a founding board member of the U.S. Committee on Human Rights in North Korea. He's one of the most knowledgeable people on this. And we had an interesting conversation with him about North Korea, the strategic outlook for the U.S., um, and also a brief discussion on the tensions right now between South Korea and Japan. Yeah, and the launching off point is a New York Times op-ed he wrote that we'll link to in the show notes if you want to look at it, called Kim Jong-un's No Good, Very Bad Year, which caught us both by surprise because I think, at least for me, whenever I read about like center-right commentary on North Korea, it seemed to all center around Trump's disgraceful comments of like the bromance with Kim Jong-un. And this whole time, and like the liberal commentary obviously is also pretty anti-Trump's agenda. So I just thought everyone was kind of universally in agreement that our strategy vis-a-vis Kim Jong-un was not going very well. Yeah, Nick kind of sweeps through some of that and gets down to the brass tacks here about what's really going on. Yeah. Um, So without further ado, here he is, Dr. Nick Eberstadt. Nick, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for inviting me, guys. So as we said in the intro, we are here to talk about your new piece in the New York Times. And can you start off, just tell us, why has the past year been so bad for Kim Jong-un? Well, for some reason, he seems to be off his game. And it may even be because United States policy is pushing him off his game. Uh, he's, ha- he's had something now in terms of a series of setbacks that look almost like a losing streak. Uh, it, started, uh, in, uh, it started early in this year with the summit with uh, President Trump in Hanoi. Um, it looked like the U.S. was willing to agree once again, as per usual, to a bad deal. Uh, but the North Koreans insisted on a very, very bad deal for the U.S., and the U.S. declined. And that seemed to shock uh, the North Korean side. Then, earlier this summer, President Trump, who was scheduled to do the typical presidential photo op at the DMZ separating North and South Korea, tweets to the world, including to uh, Kim Jong-un, that he would be happy to meet Kim Jong-un should he show up at the DMZ. And within a couple of hours, the North Korean side says, okay, he will. It's, it's a, 
if you are the living God, if you are kind of uh, Montezuma and Cortez summons you to meet him within 24 hours, it's not good optics uh, in North Korean uh, system. And there's even some indications. I wouldn't want to go too far on this because I'm not a super good uh, Kremlinologist, especially not a Kremlinologist for North Korea. But there's some indications from the North Korean propaganda press that there's uh, questions about the infallible one's judgment. Now, all of this must be seen in the context of a surreptitious nuclear development program, which is going on day and night. Oh, that hasn't stopped. But in the contest, the diplomatic contest with the United States, for the first time in a very long time, we're seeing the North Korean side seriously off its game. Yeah, I have to admit, I was pretty shocked, actually, when I read your op-ed, because I feel like most of the commentary we hear from the media about Trump and North Korea is that Trump is just being kind of disgraceful with what he says, calling Kim Jong-un, this horrendous dictator, a good friend. So I was pretty surprised to see your opinion on it. And I mean, is there any sign other than Kim Jong-un being off his game and agreeing to meet when that's usually not a North Korean condition that the U.S. is achieving strategic objectives here? Part of, uh, part of what Kim Jong-un revealed at Hanoi uh, is suggestive of U.S. objectives and their success. Kim Jong-un apparently more or less sprung on the U.S. side this, uh, you know, kind of by a dead puppy for the third time sort of idea that uh, the U.S. should lift all of the sanctions put in place in Trump era, which are all of the main sanctions against the North Korean economy, both uh, uh, U.S. Treasury and United Nations Security Council, in return for uh, inspection and freezing one of their many uh, facilities. Mm. But you have to ask, why was the North Korean ruler so intent upon having sanctions lifted? One of the reasons may be because finally sanctions are forcing the distorted and dependent North Korean economy to spend down its currency reserves and to spend down its war reserves of food and energy to a point that will eventually be unsustainable. When we uh, talk about what shall we call it, uh, the president's special and unique style of diplomacy uh, that is unlike any previous uh, president and um, as an American citizen, I wish that I had a president who could explain and convince consistently because that's how you get national uh, that's how you get national support and that's how you help uh, build uh, alliances and coalitions internationally. I wouldn't say that the I'd never say that the president is uh, uh, is a gangster. If you remember, however, the uh, movie The Godfather, Vito Cor Leone says uh, at one point to his, one of his children, uh, don't ever tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a pretty good motto for or encapsulation for President Trump's approach to the North Korean dictator. 
Yeah, we, that's funny. Match. We talked about their Godfather last episode. Actually, I'm a huge fan. Match somehow has not seen that. Talked about Chris Cuomo and Fredo. Sh- shamefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you've got these sanctions in place. Yeah. Kim Jong Un a bit, you know, off his game. Trump, U.S. full applying pressure still. But has anything actually changed? I mean, you say the nuclear program is still going day and night. Has anything really changed or what accounts for the relative quiet? I mean, for a while, everyone thought we were going to be at war with North Korea. Not everyone. A lot of people thought. Yeah, but we heard a lot about the bloody nose strike about hitting them with a missile or something. And now it seems like we don't really see that. So what gives? Okay. Well, so we go through periods in North Korea's management of the nuclear crisis. We probably shouldn't call it a crisis because it's a sort of a stage-managed affair where Pyongyang has uh, traditionally called uh, called the choreography. Uh, But we go through quiet periods in this. uh, And I would suppose it might be better to describe this as a sort of a Sitzkrieg period. Um, It's not because we're on the eve of uh, peace love and understanding. It's that this is the kind of the dialectic that that we go through, the tick and talk on this. As best I can make out, and uh, this is an interpretation, right, Uh, with limited information, as best I can make out, the North Korean side made a decision at the beginning of last year with Kim Jong-un's January 1 New Year Day address 2018 that diplomatic, the diplomatic space would be explored for a year or two. The reason that we're having these discussions is because Kim Jong-un set the ground for it. He said, we have tested our nukes and our long-term missiles and we're happy with them. We're now moving to a period of mass manufacture of nukes and missiles. That's the background that we're not hearing in the discussions, right? But by stopping the so-called provocations, I don't know why they're called that, but by stopping the missile launches and the nuclear explosions, this gave uh, a space or an excuse for the South Korean leadership to start talking with the North and to pave the way for U.S. uh, North Korean highest level discussions. The North Korean side has said, we're going to give this until the end of 2019. Why a two-year leash on this? I can't tell you. Is that the necessary amount of time for the assembly factory workshop stuff they've got going on? Uh, Is that the cliff after which uh, uh, North Korea falls due to lack of strategic reserves? I honestly can't tell you. Is it because that's the beginning of the U.S. presidential campaign? I can't tell you. Do we, that's what they've said. Do we believe their boasts that they're happy with their nukes and their long-term – like do they actually have long-term missiles that could deliver a nuke to the United States, do you think? Well, I mean I'm, I'm no nuclear physicist, so I can't, I can't tell you that. They've – They've tested. Uh, they've tested long ter- uh, long range uh, ICBM. They've tested uh, what they say are um, uh, hydrogen bombs. Uh, of course, there's a question about the miniaturization, and there's questions about what the engineers would call the physics package and all of this stuff. And I'm not. I mean, how, how in the world would I know? Yeah, I just. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering how credible. Like, just as a 
concerned American. Yeah, just just assume whatever they yeah. say is a lie. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, probably a, a good starting. Uh, yeah. Well, so, so what's place. our end game with this? Then would it, would it be complete denuclearization of the peninsula, or would it? Or I, actually, that's a talking point for that that they have right to get our nukes out of South Korea. But would it be that we want them to give up all their nukes, or is it just we'd be content with the freeze where we do not let them go into mass production? Well, so far as I mean, if if we take the U.S. government at its word, which is sometimes a good thing to do, uh, the stated uh, objective of the last uh, number of uh, presidential administrations has been an end to uh, nuclear programs, not just the arsenals, but the nuclear weapons program and weapons of mass destruction in the DPRK. That would require, needless to say, a completely different political uh, environment in North Korea from the one that we've seen since the North Korean state was founded, but we don't talk too much about that. I think it was during the Hanoi summit, but maybe it was one of the other ones, when Trump was talking about you know, imagine all the things North, that could be in North Korea. Uh, you could develop the economy. You could develop these resorts along the coast. Are there, I mean, are there voices in North Korea at all that are saying, you know, he's right, like that we do have an opportunity. We should be pursuing development. Or is it completely the one-man show as Kim Jong-un? I know you're not the Kremlinologist. But is there any sense that there's dissent that's saying we should pursue a more rational well, – Again, rational is a sticky word, but you know you know what I mean. More Western. Yeah. Well, so in in the summit last year in Singapore, I think this was the first time that we got this uh, intense uh, argument from President Trump directly to the North Korean dictator about the uh, alternative option. Uh, the uh, that was repeated at Hanoi, as you said. Um, We even had this unusual little video that had been prepared by some government. We were told it was prepared by ours uh, of showing the alternative path, the destiny productions for what a different future for North Korea could be like if they um, chose a different path of prosperity and peace. The North Korean approach until now is uh, we can have them both. We can, uh, we can be more prosperous and we'll use a bit of our prosperity, maybe a lot of our prosperity to speed up our nuclear missile, our nuclear missile program. And if we denuclearize, do we really trust our enemies to uh, leave us alone and not take advantage of this. If you want to call them dissenting voices, and I don't think that that would be quite the right term for them, but if you look at the debate in the North Korean press to the extent that one can see something like a debate between different types of voices, uh, the group that you'd associate most closely with the current Kim Jong-un policy is the group that's saying, well, look, we can engage with the monsters overseas and we can actually make things better for ourselves. And the people who are uh, seem to be 
voicing a different opinion or saying, well, do you know what these monsters are like? You, know, they're, they're, you can never trust them. They'll eat us alive. You know, we've, we should get back to what we know how to do well, which is a confrontasi, brinkmanship, developing our nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, and treat them like the enemies that we know that they are. So the, the other voice is not calling for glasnost or yeah. perestroika. North Korea is known as the hermit kingdom. Are they still as economically isolated as that implies? And if they are, how do they, I mean, how do they feed their people? I know their people are pretty malnourished, but how do they, how is their economy even sustainable? And how are they not just going to collapse under the weight of these sanctions? Well, they may eventually collapse under the weight of the sanctions. I mean, if the, if the sanctions are successful, uh, they'll suffocate the North Korean economy and they'll eventually cause a food crisis. And if, if we are successful, I hope we also have thought about how we have a program of intrusive aid that can address the distress of the vulnerable without feeding the regime. Um, Sanctions have usually been a very ineffective tool of diplomacy because coercive economic diplomacy generally hasn't worked uh, because economies are resilient and because they can adapt and for all sorts of reasons you can see that why sanctions wouldn't necessarily work. North Korea is a sort of a poster child for application of successful sanctions because its economy is so inefficient, because it's so distorted, and because it has been so dependent upon foreign largesse of ever since, let's say, ever since the rise of Kim Jong-il in the, uh, in the 1970s. And that's what I think gives us some hope that we can um, uh, – that we can – Use uh, use sanctions in a way that could reduce North Korean killing power. The usual objective of sanctions is to change a government's decisions or policies. I wouldn't really uh, offer much hope that we could coerce uh, the North Korean regime into changing its decisions or its policies, but we could maybe put them in a straitjacket. So now I don't know when it would have began, but the South, the South Korea kind of opening up to North Korea, uh, if that's the right term to use. That's been going on now for over over a year. Are they? Is there any sense in South Korea that that's not the right policy to be pursuing, or are they still taking this kind of softer approach? Well, so this uh, engagement or sunshine approach mm-hmm. that the current Moon Jae-in administration is uh, embarked upon is the third iteration of a sunshine policy. The first one was uh, inaugurated by President Kim Dae-jung when he came to office in the late 1990s. Then it was followed by his successor, No Mo Hyun. Then there was a a hiatus under so-called conservative governments, and now we're back to this again. It's an ideological policy. It is an ideological view. And uh, it's a sort of a secular faith that it will be possible to transform the North Korean regime and its behavior through openness, 
contact and what they call engagement. And, you know, the thing about secular faiths is that just like religions, they're impervious to refutation through empirical facts. This is just a belief that the uh, that the, this particular government and its adherents hold. Um, it points to deep divisions within South Korean society. South Korean society is at least as polarized as U.S. society at the moment. I think if you can imagine this, it's even more polarized. And the sunshine policy is in effect a, uh, an aperture on a long-standing debate. You might even call it an internal civil war an unfinished civil war within South Korean society between people who see the most awful things in South Korean society as being related to the North Korean threat on the one hand and people who see the most awful and troubling things in South Korean society as being vestiges of collaboration with the Japanese colonialists in the old times or maybe with the Americans today. Yeah, I, I mean, just maybe I'm just buying into American propaganda, but I North Korea's very existence almost seems surreal to me. It's just a uniquely brutal, horrible kingdom. And I, I I mean, my college roommate actually was friends with the guy, Otto Wambier, who died and just probably tortured and murdered by the North Koreans. And I mean, is it is it just naive to expect that the rest of the world or that China and Russia and the states that kind of prop North Korean up can be shamed? into? I mean, it's it's honestly hard to fathom how the world has allowed North Korean to exist for so long. And it seems like they're never going to change without the resort to some sort of force or, ec or economic sanctions or something like that. Or I mean... Is the, again, is this just a the American propaganda view that I've bought into and maybe they could change if eventually on their own? The thing which has been amazing to me over the years that I've you know, tried to learn about and understand this situation is the extent to which North Korean propaganda finds some purchase in South Korea in an open democratic society. I wouldn't want to exaggerate it. Uh, but it is above zero. It is above zero. Uh, and the reason for this is because I mean, North Korea doesn't go with any of this Marxist-Leninist nonsense, you know, or Engels or any of that sort of, you know, Hegelian, uh, you know, mumbo-jumbo. It's good old-fashioned racialism. It's racial socialism. I mean, you know, the, not, the, the term national socialism has already been dibsed, so let's leave that over in Europe. But it's racial socialism, and th that tribal hum in the blood uh, still has some resonance in large parts of Asia, not just the Korean Peninsula. So that's part of. Uh, I mean, that's part of the picture. For reasons of their own, the Chinese and Russian governments uh, wish to thwart the American reach in Asia. And uh, I think it was um, uh, FDR was talking about a particular uh, uh, leader in our hemisphere, and he said uh, he may be a bastard, but he's our bastard. Uh, if if their bastard can cause more 
difficulty for the American bastards than he's causing for them, that seems to be a sufficient condition for them to support this atrocious, appalling monstrosity of a human rights nightmare. So something else related but different. So obviously all over the news lately too has been increased tensions between Japan and South Korea. Um, really, I think new sanctions, are they no longer is Japan a most favored nation for South Korea? Can, can you just explain a bit about what's going on there, the roots and the political significance of it? Well, the the most the most immediate news items uh, recently have been uh, the South Korean government's announcement that it will no longer be engaging in uh, intelligence cooperation, intelligence sharing with the Japanese government, even though both Japan and South Korea are security defense treaty partners with the USA and get uh, intelligence cooperation with the with the US this is part of a uh, spiraling um, uh, spat tantrum uh, between the governments of Seoul and uh, Tokyo and while there are many particulars that one can point to in this escalating uh, situation, the more general point I think one would make is that there has never been a real normalization of relations between Japan and the ROK since World War II, the way there was a normalization between Germany and France after World War II. I mean, the Germans did a lot of things in France uh, that we know about, and yet it was possible for leadership in those two countries to form an entente after the war, looking forward for the security and prosperity of both. We haven't had the corresponding leadership in Japan and South Korea to surmount the bitterness and the you know, horrors of the past and to look towards prosperity and security that both societies could build together. Yeah, just as a casual observer of you know foreign affairs news, that came as Pretty surprised. I had no idea that there was all this tension still between South Korea and Japan, and especially seemed troubling because, I mean, I feel like now more than ever with the U.S. versus China rivalry in North Korea, that we need a very united front between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, and this Eastern Asian security s- structure. Is there anything the U.S. can do to try to repair those ties, or is President sure. Trump just making it? We can tell them to grow up. We can tell them that there are more important problems on the horizon than playing small ball in domestic politics. We can ask whether you want to live in a post-war world or an interwar world. So is this, is this stemming from the South Korean side? It's stemming from the South Korean side or? There's some, in, there's some, in, uh, there's some on the uh, Japan side as well. Okay. I mean, I, there is, if, if one is going to get into the, uh, into the finding fault game, it's possible to find plenty of fault on both sides. The, uh, the challenge is to rise above the allure in domestic politics of these sorts of international recriminations and to try to think about what would be needed to build a peaceful post-DPRK world in Northeast Asia. 
All right. Well, if they're listening to the leaders of South Korea and Japan, please grow up. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it from Matt, this dude you've never heard of before. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks Bay so Bay. much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a positive rating or review on the iTunes store. Like listener Chad M. Bowl, who says, As a neoliberal slash liberal who values exposing himself to many different viewpoints, it's nice to find a conservative discussion that usually avoids bad faith arguments. Usually. <laughs> Look, we're not perfect. I often disagree, at least partially, with the policies being advocated, but my blood doesn't boil while listening. I consider that a win. Well, thank you, Chad. Chad, I have to say my blood boils <laughs> listening to that comment. My blood boils that we only got four out of five stars from this <laughs> comment, but we'll take what we can get. No, that's a nice comment. We appreciate that. We're glad that we can, uh, yeah. you know, reach the spectrum. Yeah, and we try to avoid bad faith. I mean, I don't think we've made many. If we do, it's unintentional. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Chad. Very much enjoy the comment. You can also email us at banter at AEI.org. We respond to all inquiries. <laughs> Well, we want to have a interesting conversation about something not North Korea related, but we're kind of stuck here, <laughs> everyone. So. Honestly, this whole thing is just utterly depressing, and I, I, I don't, I think any, everyone would benefit from enough with the North Korean talk. Maybe migrating on to something different. Max, anything eating you up this week? Like you know, I've, grocery stores. I've, I've got an actual, I've got an actual uh, thing I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Is social media a net positive? Or is it bad? Let's talk about Facebook specifically. I've I'm incredibly anti Facebook. I deleted my Facebook about a year ago. Yeah. But I maintain I kept the you know the Messenger app. Yeah. You, when you delete your Facebook account, it keeps your Messenger account. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's helpful. Yeah. So out of the blue, some friends that I made when I was visiting Poland one time messaged me and said we're coming to Washington. Yeah. Well, we want to see you. Only way we kept in touch was via that. They're here in D.C. right now. Stay with me. And. If I didn't have Facebook Messenger app, which gives Facebook all my information about everything, I would never have known they're coming. I wouldn't even have a way to communicate with them aside from Messenger. Let it postcards. Yeah, I mean, like, my I, I do think it is a net positive, at least for me. Societally, I don't, I don't really know. But as someone on the AEI digital team, I think I have a vested interest in thinking that is positive <laughs> because part of, part of our team is <laughs> supposed to man these uh, social media things. But... I don't know. Like, I, I, part of me thinks I never even would have heard about AEI without social media because, I mean, I, I heard about it through a brochure at like a university career fair, but I never would have applied for the internship if I didn't see on the internship brochure Jonah Goldberg, who is a name that I found via Twitter, I think. Mm. And then National Review, I, I came across via reading things on Twitter. AEI, actually, I think I came across because they wrote a New York Times article defending Tom Brady and Deflategate, where Stan Voiger and Kevin Hassett did a whole analysis on how the balls were properly inflated. <laughs> and I've stumbled upon, I found that on Twitter. Then I read through that article, found out that the, the authors were economists at AEI. Hmm. And most of my Twitter feed now is all either sports reporters or political pundits. And I mean, I, this is a hugely beneficial thing. Like I, I find about so many books through Twitter. I find out about so much of the news through Twitter. So many interesting cultural. I, I agree, articles. but I think I think we have a tendency. It's like I do love Twitter because I only all, like pretty much everyone I follow is directly involved in something I'm interested in. Yeah. Yet at the same time, I only consider the good part about that. The bad part about it is when I go on Twitter, I'd say probably eight out of ten tweets are people just talking trash, or it's like somebody academic like try, talking trash about another ap- academic. Yeah. You know, you see stuff all the time. Yeah, and, and it's like how, like, how do you know? Like, especially, like, stuff in, like, um, you know, India or Pakistan or whatever. It's, like, it's such a fantastic way to get 
a fresh flow of information. On the other hand, you can never verify the information. I know, and I also waste a tremendous deal of time on Twitter. But I also gain... Not during the workday, though. Not during, of course, not during the workday. But I, I also gain, I feel like, a lot. The, the question is, Facebook is a different story. Facebook, I hardly even check anymore. Facebook is just a glorified way to make... Do you, private, use, fa- private do you ev- use Facebook? Only for private events, essentially. Or, like, I check it every day or so just in case... Like people organize groups. You're getting that many events every single day. You're getting well, like nine out of the nine out of the ten notifications are BS things. Like so and so just updated their status, and it's like I haven't seen this person in nine years. Why do I care that they're updated their status? Do people still update their relationship statuses on Facebook? I I don't know if people do. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. That used to be such a thing. It popped up like it would literally say someone is now single. I know. Could you think of a worse thing than broadcasting to like two thousand friends? I've just been dumped. The funniest part about that was who would then like the status of so-and-so as a single. So, like, in high school, people would be single, and then all these people would like the status. And it was like, you knew right then, okay, so obviously all this dude's friends are very happy he's single now because like, what, what is the ex-girlfriend thinking now when she sees that everybody's happy about do you, it? Do you remember when people used to post statuses? I remember one of my friends was dumped, and they post – girl in the situation then post a facebook status the lyrics to jason derulo riding solo really yeah so actually i think I, I knew a guy in college uh, or in high school that did a similar thing i think he posted um single the single lyrics by bo burnham or someone but yeah i i'm very happy that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. What, what, well, i'm genuinely happy that we did not grow i mean i don't know about you i guess i guess it'd probably be the same yeah, we're the same age. Well, I'm a year older. <laughs> You're a <But> month older. <laughs> a year in school old. We didn't. When I was in high school, we didn't have Snapchat, and Instagram yeah. wasn't much of a thing. Yeah, it wasn't until I got to college that those things really kind of blew up. And now I can't even imagine being like a like a 12 year old with everyone Snapchatting, gossiping. I know my younger brother clicks and is stuff like that. Five years younger than me, I think. So he went through high school at the peak of the Instagram Snapchat phase, and it does seem miserable because it's got to be awful. Yeah. I mean, you, you, even you see it now. It's like people, you know, it's like they shoot a video. Like they're all hanging out with their friends and someone real, realizes they're not invited. Imagine like a high school situation. It's got to take a terrible mental toll. On, we, should, we should do this. On, we should have someone on Banter to talk about this. I'm sure there's people here that do research on Yeah, it. there's a great article in The Atlantic. Did you see it about iGen? It was several months. It might have even been a year ago now. But they couldn't prove causation. But since the invention of the iPhone, the loneliest, loneliness and like mental health mm. of the generation – Y or Z, whatever generation is below millennials, is just horrendous now. And we should find out who she is and try to interview her. But, I mean, there's that song, I'm Just a Kid and Life is a Nightmare, about <laughs> where the lyrics are like, I woke up, it was 7, I waited till 11 just to figure out that no one would call. Now it's not. And now it's worse than just not getting a phone call to hang out with friends. It's getting, it's seeing Instagram stories and Snapchat yeah. stories of, of people hanging out without you. If you're 15, 16, that, that sounds horrible. Well, on this note, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> I am at M A X Y Frost. Is your Maxie middle name Frost? Y, but... No, my, I used to always go by Maxie as a kid. Oh, I still, my parents still call me Maxie. Max... Now I'm at Maxie Frost. My prior name was deemed too unprofessional. Who did at that? Namax Day. You and the FDP Twitter, Foreign Policy Twitter, would not retweet my article. Oh, really? Because of the <laughs> because handle? it's Namax Day. That doesn't sound professional. So now I'm Maxie Frost. Follow yeah. me on Twitter. I'm just Matt underscore Winesett. Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Neither one of us really tweet a whole lot. Probably you just sit there and talk whole... trash about academics the whole time on Twitter. <laughs> it's very enlightening. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Come back next week. We're going to have an interesting epi- episode for you on something we do not yet know. But have a great Labor Day weekend. Relax. Don't labor too much. Yeah. And we'll see you then. <laughs>